We are in the Gospel of John, and what we are doing is we are looking at uh, some of the problems that we don't have if we take the Gospel of John literally. Now, uh, our series began in this mini-series. It began when we were looking at, we started by looking at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And there's an important principle there that will solve a problem with John. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, Scriptures God breathed. And it's profitable, but who is it profitable for? That's, this is important to remember. Who is Scripture profitable for? Is it profitable for the unsaved man in the street? No, it's not, because they won't understand it. They don't use it. They don't even like it. They don't welcome the truth that's in the book. So if the whole of Scripture is written to the person of God, then why would the Gospel of John be an exception to the norm of Scripture? Why would it be written to the unsaved? And we saw, by going through it, you can go back in your notes and see that we mentioned a number of things that if you taught the unsaved and told them that, they would not like it at all. They would not like hearing that Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead, that he's got that authority. They're not going to like that. They don't want judgment. And there's a number of other things that the Gospel of John presents, such as that the Father gave some to the Son and those will come. Nobody wants, boy, there's even Christians that do not want to think that God made the selection. They want to think that man's got the choice somehow. I'm sorry to tell you, if it hadn't been an eternity past that God made the decree the way that he did and he had chosen some, nobody would ever come to Christ. Nobody would. And there's a number of reasons in the scripture. Now, currently we're working through the introduction to John's gospel. And, and what I like about John's gospel in particular, and I've mentioned this a number of times, is that unlike the other writers of scripture, he actually gives an introduction to First John, to the gospel of John, and to Revelation, he gives an outline, an introduction, and something of an outline of what he's going to cover. And that marks John off as being unique. And so, when you go down through the Gospel of John, verses one, chapter 1, verse 1, down through verse 18, that tells you pretty much what John is going to present in his Gospel. And as you look through this, you will see that the evidence has little to show about people coming to know Christ in our dispensation but it has a lot to do with his manifestation of the character of God, concluding in verse 18. It says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared, we've mentioned this before, we get the word that us, uh, that us uh, seminary guys know real well, exegete. He's exegeted him. He's thoroughly explained deity. No one has seen God with their eyes, but Jesus Christ has thoroughly explained deity. And so if, if people today ever were to ask me or to ask you, well, what is God like? Well, you know, you can tell it very simply. Read the Gospel of John. Now, if they're Christians, they can do it. If they're not Christians, that's going to be a little harder. But read the Gospel of John because he thoroughly explained what God is like. That's what it says. So that's what this Gospel is about. So if we take it literally and look at the introduction itself, we can see that this is not a book that is written to bring people to Christ. It's a book written to show the people of God that this one is fully deity. And that really shows you something because if you remember, this gospel was written right at the end of the first century. And the fact that John has to keep coming back to the full deity of Christ over and over and over and over again through his gospel, what does that tell you about the condition of the church at the end of the first century? They were struggling to understand the deity of Christ. 
And that's why this, book, this gospel, I think, is just as up-to-date as it ever was, because what do we have today in the modern church? We have people that are struggling to understand or comprehend the deity of Christ. If you think that's an exaggeration, you ought to listen to some of the sermons. Listen to some of the popular gospel songs. There's one that always gets me that, that uh, I like to listen to uh, abiding radio when I'm sitting at home. It, and I have the Christian, it has, it has instrumental Christian music and has all these hymns. And I, for some reason, I can remember the words of most of them. And most of them are familiar. But there's one that I hear that just really gets to me. And it shows you what people think. It's called The Savior is Waiting to Enter Your Heart. Is anybody familiar with that, that old gospel song? It came out in the, in the 60s, late 60s. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world that keeps you apart. What is your answer to him? And of course, it's time after time he's waited before, and now he's waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Are you serious? That is the deity of Christ, and he's there knocking on a door. Your heart doesn't have a door, but supposing it did, he's there. Can I come in? Are you serious? That's why I say this, this message in this book is as timely today as it ever was, because I don't know if at any era of the church throughout its history, that anybody really seemed to, except for just a very small minority of people, to understand the deity of Christ and to take it into account. Because people will say they believe it, but then they'll turn around and they'll have these songs about, well, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. He's waiting to come in. Will you receive him? Receive him? That's, that's just not true at all. Well, this makes me, yeah, oh, okay. So, what do you think? You want to read some of this? So, as we're, we were on page 7 as we got through this, and we are looking at the function of John the Baptist. Now, John was, in First John chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. Oh, I think Mama's going to borrow her. It is a little bit harder to turn the pages when you have her up there, you know, and besides, I was waiting for her to go after the pages. But in John chapter, let's go back to John chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, and we're going to start talking about the role of John the Baptist. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So John is sent in fulfillment of prophecy. You notice it says there was a man sent from God. Now it's interesting that, that, he, that it would be sent, that it would be stated that way. It doesn't just say John came. It said, it's emphasized that he was a man sent from God. Now that's important because by this time, is already in the, in the early church by the end of the first century, there are people who are beginning to come up into the church that are heretics. And they're coming on their own. In fact, Paul mentions some of that in his writings much earlier. So this is a man sent from God. And it's not, you know, it's not, inc- it's not incidental that this would be stated. It's important, every single word. So there's a man sent from God. So in other words, God is the reason this man came. Now, he came in fulfillment of prophecy. <coughs> because <coughs> we know, <coughs> excuse me, all the Gospels refer to Isaiah chapter 40. Excuse me, so hold your finger here in John. Let's go back to Isaiah for just a moment in the 40th chapter. 
in Isaiah, uh, you have a break in the style. And just for information, there are those who claim that two or maybe even three people wrote the gospel, uh, book of Isaiah because there's a change in the style. Now, of course, if you were writing a, a book of any length, uh, you might come to a certain point and change, this, change the subject so the style of writing would sound kind of different. But some have picked up on this in the 40th chapter. So it starts off by saying this. Now, up until this point, you've had judgment, and then you've had the warning that the Babylon was coming to get the rest of the nation, in the 39th chapter to Hezekiah. But the 40th chapter, all of a sudden, after you have all this judgment, now notice the change in the 40th chapter. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Up to this point, there hasn't been a lot of comfort offered in, in the first 39 chapters. So now it's changed. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for the Lord, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So now you find something back here, some important things that Israel's sins are going to be forgiven. Now this is still future, but they were going to be offered the kingdom, and you can see they were to prepare themselves for the coming of God himself, and his glory was going to be manifest throughout all the earth. Now you find that that's, that's found in all the Gospels. Uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 3, you can see that this is exactly what Matthew said. Now, the only difference between John and the other Gospels is he's going to include something about the uniqueness of John the Baptist in terms of his own disciples. But in Matthew chapter 3, you have a warning. Verse 11 and 12 in particular. Excuse me, verses 1 through 3. You have, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then he does mention down here in verse 11 about judgment that would come. And we're not going to deal with that at the moment. But you'll notice he says that. And then if you look over at the Gospel of Mark, just a few pages over, you see that he also predicted the coming of this one. So his, the coming of uh, John the Baptist was not something that should have been a surprise to the people of Israel. And you have, beginning at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I, Mark is such a concise gospel. And if you want to know something about the, about the character of this man, John Mark, or Mark that, that Paul said left him, you can see there's something about him in here because he keeps talking about straightway, straightway, which is the idea of immediately, immediately, and it's a hurry-up kind of a word. So he left Paul and Barnabas in that first missionary journey in Acts 15, or 13, because he was always in a hurry. And these guys were not cooperating, apparently. But so you, in, John, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare thy way before thee, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And also, if you look over in to Luke chapter 3, you see it again. 
So it, his coming is well recorded, but John does add one, that one difference that you're going to see, his interplay with his disciples that you don't find in the other Gospels. So I always thought Luke had the most interesting details, but I've come to the conclusion that uh, John has probably even more uniqueness, more unique details. In, in Luke chapter 3, let's see, and it, it says, in, uh, this is, well, let's go beginning at verse 1, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanus, the tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas either, by the way, Courtney, Abilene, Texas. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now here you see it's different. The word of God came to him. So we know in John 3, it says, John 1, it said he was a man sent from God. And this tells you that the word of God came unto him, and that's the reason he was sent. So it says the word of God... Uh, came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance from, for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of uh, the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then, of course, it continues on. So you can see that Christ's ministry is well known. Now, you see, we, we put in our notes, if you're on page 7 with our notes, uh, the Gospel of Mark records part of Christ's future ministry, but it doesn't really mention in, that he's the Messiah, per se. And Luke's Gospel mentions some of the future of Christ's ministry about the coming judgment that he would bring. But now, John the Baptist's ministry was unique with his own disciples. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, you might not think that it's so much talking about his disciples, but I think we'll see from the Gospel of John in the first chapter, after you get through the introduction, that he did have that effect. It says, The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, when you look at this, in our notes, we put in our notes about light and darkness. Uh, They're used, sometimes, descriptive of people in the New Testament. When it talks about light and dark, it's often a quality out there of nature. It's light in the daytime, it's dark at night. But it's also used about believers and unbelievers. So if you look at Ephesians 5, uh, he was bearing witness of the light. He's talking about not just the quality of something, he's talking about bearing witness to someone who would bring our knowledge. And you can see it in in, uh, Ephesians 5, Paul speaking to the Ephesians says in verse 8, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So you were sometimes darkness. Now he's talking about people. But you were darkness. There was nothing in you that would manifest the life of God. There was nothing there at all. But now you are light. Now we also have in here, we won't look it up, but you can see in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it talks about light and darkness to describe believers and unbelievers. Now, the light and darkness is also used to describe how a life is manifested by the activities of the saved and the lost. And now for this one, so this will give you a good idea of what's, what's going on with this. But in 1 John 1, 6, you can see something that John says that believers, you know, we were darkness, but now we can still 
walk in darkness. Look what it says in John 1.6. Well, let's read verse 5 with it. This is the message. This is John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, is this talking about people that are unsaved? No, it says if we say we have fellowship, we walk in darkness. Now, if you notice in, in our notes, we put something, I believe, that will be helpful. This in Pauline's terminology, in his terminology, we'd call this carnality. One of the things that I've noticed, and, and I hope that you recognize, if you read through the epistles of, of John and particularly of Peter, you will find that Peter and John do have some of the same concepts that Paul does, but they will put it in different words. And that can throw people for a loop sometimes. And they can say, well, this is something different than what Paul said. This is a di-. No, it's the same thing. Walking in darkness, you're not showing the life of God. Well, now, what would Paul call that? Well, in carnality, you're acting like an unsaved person. Is that not the same thing? Another illustration is, you remember in Peter, and this is one of my favorite illustrations, because I like the way it's put, where he talks in, the, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, about fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And I kind of like that because I can see a mental image there. I can see something and say, yeah, I can see this. Well, you know, that's something that Paul said because he said, walk by the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Isn't it the same thing, essentially? Paul's saying you'll fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, Peter just kind of puts a different poetic sound to it. Those fleshly lusts war against the soul. What's well, the same thing. So when you read through the epistles, be careful that when you look at some things, compare and you'll see that it just may be that this is John's terminology for carnality. And it really is. So we can walk in darkness. Now back in Ephesians 5 again for just a second before we go back into John. There's something else important that I, I like to emphasize. One of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that in the Old Testament you will have commandments for the people to do certain things. They're told to do this. They're told to be holy, among other things. But you're never particularly told how to do those things. You're told to do them. But there's a big difference. When you come to the epistles, you're told how to do it. Now, we went back to Ephesians 5.8. It says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Now, he says to do something. But does he tell you how? Yes, he does, because if you slide down through the context, he says in verse 17, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, he's talked about walking in light. Now, he's going to come back and say, it's the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? And be not drunk with wine, in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Ah, how do you walk as children of light? How do you show that life of God? You have to be filled by the Spirit because of the things that result in verses 19, 20, and 21. If you look at those things, none of those things occur in people naturally very often. In fact, some of them never occur in people. You could just imagine going to work on Monday morning, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Has anybody ever heard somebody on Monday morning coming to work singing and humming, and even especially Christian songs? If you know a Christian, have you ever seen another Christian do this? 
I think I might have once. There was one guy that I worked with, I think, that must have known some of the spiritual life because sometimes you'd see him happy. And we were working in one of the worst jobs you've ever seen. And he would sometimes show this. So this is not a common thing. This is how you walk as children of light. If you're filled with the Spirit, these are things that come out. And then this other one, giving thanks always for all things. Ah, how many times in the workplace can you think of people giving thanks for their situation at work? for the way their boss treats them, the wages that they have, or the new processes, the new procedures they have to do, which they ask for the people's opinion on it. Everybody gave their opinion, and the boss chose something that was completely different than he had chosen in the first place, and all of your thoughts were just a waste. And how often do you see people in those situations sit there and say, thank you, Lord? Unsafe people wouldn't do that, and a lot of Christians don't even do that. Then you look at that. Submitting yourselves one to another, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another. How often do you see people willing to let someone else tell them what to do? To submit, to allow others to have authority over you. For your own benefit. How often do you see that happening? I can remember in the workplace, some of the jobs I had, where they were, the boss would say to do something, and the guys would say, huh, I ain't going to do that. And they wouldn't, and they didn't. And so I see some people nodding. I, I, I must not have been the only work. I must not have had the only job where people didn't do that, because I imagine there's a few. But the point is that when Scripture tells you to do something, then it tells you how to do it in the New Testament. And keep that in mind. That's one of the big distinctions for those who want to make the Old Testament and the New Testament identical. You could you could take them up on this in the Old Testament. Find the verses where it says "Be holy," and then show me in the context how to be holy in the Old Testament. It just says, do it. Why? Well, because the people of Israel said, anything God says to do, we'll do it. So God's given them plenty of things. And not only the Ten Commandments, but there's other things like, be holy, for I am holy. Now, how do you do it? Well, you people can do it. You can do anything God says, so you should know how to do it. But you don't have the same thing in the New Testament. Our salvation, and our we have so much more than they did. And that's just one of the things that when we're told to do something, we're told how to do it. Well, so top of page 8 on our, on our notes if you're following along. Now, John had disciples. We, we were talking back in John chapter 1 to get back there again. That he came as a witness. But now, John, his unique ministry was to his disciples was simply because, like all great teachers, he had people follow him. He had followers, and uh, I got one of my followers right here. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oops. Actually, I wouldn't have minded. Uh, it's still on there, John? I wouldn't have minded holding her, but it's just kind of hard to hold her and speak at the same time. It's nice to be nice for your little ones to like you, though. So, what we're saying with John is that John drew disciples to himself. Now, when it says he came for a witness that all might believe through him, it started with his disciples. But the thing we need to remember is, like all great teachers of this time, a man who was a great teacher would draw disciples to him. Now, I have on your notes on page 8, it says, In former times, there, were no, there weren't Bible colleges. If you wanted to learn from a teacher, you became his disciple. Now, there's an interesting place, and I want to look back at Second Kings for just a moment. Because some of the things that, that we take for granted are more recent. They didn't have Bible colleges. They didn't have institutions of higher learning. 
or sometimes I think maybe higher indoctrination. I don't know today. <laughs> That's not that wasn't nice, but it's true. But so in in those days, you became a, a disciple or a follower. Now, you see it here, and it's not stated that way, but you can tell that's what's, what's going on. In, in 2 Kings chapter 6, now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, you know, the sons of the prophets, these are individuals who apparently God has given the ability to be a prophet, or at least their parents, their, their dad was a prophet. So the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, the place where we dwell with you, it's, it shows that they're staying with him as though they were staying like at a college dormitory. They were staying and they wanted to build a bigger place to stay. Now, why were they there with him? Well, they were the sons of the prophet and they were staying with, with Elisha because they were going to learn from him. He was going to teach them. And that, that's still, in some parts of the world, I guess that still goes on where you can go to some place and you can become a follower of some great teacher of some you know, Eastern cult or something like that, you can still do that in some places in the world to this day. Now, why are we saying that, that John, uh, his, his ministry had a big effect? Well, if you look down into the first chapter, if you down to verse, let's see, I wanted to go to verse uh, 30, 35, and this is John as he's speaking. John chapter 1, and we're back in verse uh, 35. Well, we can, let's go back to verse 29. This, this will start, this will give you one, because John is going to say some things, but he's saying them to the crowd, yes, but more importantly, it looks like he's saying them to his own people. He was bearing witness to all, but he was starting with his own. In verse 29 of John 1, the next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, John, the Gospel of John is the only place where you read this. this. This is the only time this is recorded in the four Gospels. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. There's one reason why John came. To identify the Messiah. He said, I knew him not, therefore, that he should be made manifest to Israel, I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record and saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it bowed upon him. Please notice it said like a dove. If, if you, on our Saturday study, we've been using, we've been looking at similes, and like is one of the big ones that people overlook that. They say, Holy Spirit is a dove. No, it's, he's descended like a dove would descend. It was kind of a fluttering down or something like that. I don't think it even meant that it had feathers or anything like that. People really get fancy with this. So the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. I said, okay, but then verse 34, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, here, notice what follows. And again, the next day after John stood, in, and two of his disciples And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. There, now you can see something. What was John doing? He wanted people to believe. He wanted people to believe in the light. And he was starting with his own disciples. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect that these were probably two of his best disciples that had understood what he was talking about because they responded to what they heard. And what they heard was 
the message of the millennial kingdom being offered. The kingdom was there, and this was the Lamb of God. This was the one who was going to do this, so they went. Now, I believe, personally, now, first of all, I, can, I can't prove it, but I would say I suspect that these were his two best disciples because we find out that one of them is none other than Andrew, who goes to get Peter. And uh, I think, let's see, one of them was Andrew, and it's, uh, da, da, da. let's see, I think the other one might have been, well, it doesn't say who it was here. But we have one that was Andrew, so that was one of Christ's better disciples, too. But if you look over at the third chapter, I think there's something about John that he was unique. He understood something I wish that everybody would understand. The ministry that we have today, it's not about Kevin or Courtney or myself. It's about Christ and his preeminence. Now, and if you look at the third chapter, uh, beginning at verse 24, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there, there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom you bear witness, behold, the same baptized, and all men come to him. All are coming to him. Now, what is the implication there? What are you going to do about it? Everybody's going to him. Now, what does John say? John answered, and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is therefore fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I don't think he's talking about stature or anything else. I think he's talking about numerical. He must increase in number. I must decrease. In other words, what was John doing? He was sending his disciples away. Now, that's kind of, if you think about it, have you ever seen a Bible teacher or any kind of a leader try and send his people that he was training up and sending them to follow somebody else that was greater? Have you ever seen that happen? I've never seen anything quite like that. And so John... When they say John was a great man, this is one of the great points of the man. This man had a humility that is not commonly found in anybody, even sometimes in believers. It should know better. So when I say that John, his ministry was to influence his disciples, and his effect was so great on him, his part of it was that he sent away his disciples, that he would have had them all, if it was up to him, he would have had them all follow Jesus. Now, Moving on in this, we come to verses 9 through 11 in John chapter 1, at our introduction. And we read there, That was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. We're going to hold off on verse 12, because verse 12 shows that he didn't get much of a response. But the word was rejected by his own people. Now, down through here, I've been using the term the word rather than the son of God. And I think when you look at John, one of the reasons that that is chosen, and words are not just picked just because. John just didn't call him the word because he was going to be different from the other gospel writers. He's calling him the word because what does the word point to? In the beginning was the word. That goes back before the decree. That goes back to eternity past. That is identifying Jesus Christ as being the eternal person of deity that he is. 
It is the strongest way to refer to Jesus Christ. Not the Son of God. That's a strong way. Yes, Son of God. Son implies equality in John 5. But if you say He's the Word, you're going back before that. You're going back because the Son of God relates to the decree and the fulfillment of the decree, how it works out. He became this position. But if you go back to eternity past, He is the eternal Word. He is the Word. That's the stronger way. To, this is the strongest way you can refer to Christ. That's why John one one is so potent because it takes him. The Word takes him back to eternity past. So he's talking about the Word down through here, but he said that was a true light which lights every man that comes into the world. Now I would say, and this is toward the bottom of page eight, that the light has the potential to reach all of humanity. Now it's not a matter of a potential because it specifically says. It's the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. There is that potential that is there. But now, of course, the problem is human response. Now, I'm not talking about election. I know there's some would like to say God looks down from eternity past and before he made the decree and said, well, Kevin would believe and Courtney would believe, so I better elect them. Doesn't that, now just in itself, doesn't that sound kind of of silly that the God who planned everything else out according to what pleased him Waited to see, wait a minute, now there's, wait a minute, there's one section I can't handle. I can't handle this who I'm going to save, so I'm going to let them choose. Let's see, Kevin, Rick, Courtney, uh, I, I don't know. That's, you'll pardon me, folks, but that just, it's been, an under, it's been a burden in my saddle lately because there's somebody that's raised an issue that should know better, and uh, to misteach that is just terrible. I, I, uh, that's, that's blasphemy to say that God has to depend upon us for anything. I just don't buy that. I can't take it. So you'll have to pardon me. But now you notice it. So it's a matter of potential. It's light. It's, the problem is not that the potential isn't there. But if you look over at John chapter 3, John's going to tell you in so many words, why is, what's the problem then? If the potential is there, if, if every man were able to give the opportunity freely, what would happen? Well, in John chapter 3, going down to verses 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. Remember, he's talking about light. He's light. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil, and this, is a, this is, keeps on practicing evil, hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So why, is, why don't people come? They don't come because they don't want to come. They don't come because it would reprove them. Now, I know that there's other things to add in here. We should add it here just to be, be fair. In Ephesians chapter 2, the reason people aren't going to come is that they're dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, talking about us and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I've used that illustration over and over again, and probably you're all tired of hearing it, but I could just imagine walking up to a casket in a mortuary. In fact, I told a friend who was having trouble with this and was kind of being kind of being pesky and picking at me. I said, okay, you go to a mortuary, you walk up to a casket, and you tell that person, hey, pal, get out of there, they're going to shovel dirt in your face. You think that person's going to do anything? No, he's dead. Now, if someone's spiritually dead and you start talking about Christ to them, do you think they're going to respond? My goodness, how in the world could you miss the obvious? So I'm, I'm going to try that sometime. I'm going to go into mortuary just, go, just for the fun and say, hey, come on, get out of there. <laughs> If the, if, the, if the mortician doesn't throw me out, my wife would probably hit me for being stupid. Because that would be... But that's what people don't see. They won't come. They don't want to come. Now look over at John chapter 5. You also have Christ saying that himself. 
And he's speaking to the religious leaders here. So you would think if anybody in Israel, if anybody should have listened to Christ, it should have been the religious leaders. But he's talking to them. And in verse 39, search the scriptures. Now, the leaders, remember, not everybody had a copy of the Bible in the Old Testament. The scrolls were expensive and hard to come by. The teachers and the well-off had them. So he's talking to teachers, people that would have them. He says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you may have life. You won't come. Why won't they come? They don't want to come. Now, please... If, if it depended upon man, nobody would ever get saved. It just wouldn't happen. I'm so thankful today that God chose some. I really am, because if he hadn't chosen me, I probably wouldn't be up here. You'd probably have somebody who was a good speaker up here that wasn't telling lousy jokes. That's what you'd have. Now, if you go back to John chapter 1, you find something interesting. And now, in Bible study, words are so important and they can be used, the same way can be used in a variety of ways and sometimes. Now, we already saw back earlier that when it said in verse 1, the Word was with God, it's talking about the Father. And the Word was God, it's talking about deity, that he was deity himself. He was with a person called the God, and he was deity. It's two different ways. But now in verse 10, here's a good one for you. He was in the world. Now, I believe that's, it's, you have three different ways. I believe there's three different ways. There's at least two, but I suggest there really are three. Word, the same word is used three different ways in one verse. He was in the world, which meant Jesus was on the planet Earth, and the world was made by him. Now, I would take that beyond just planet Earth, because the word world is, is cosmos and ordered arrangement. I believe it refers to, and it's used other ways, but other times this way, is the universe. Because he didn't just make planet Earth, did he? He spoke the whole thing into existence. So I would say he was, in, he was on planet Earth, and the whole universe was made by him. And it says, and the world knew him not. Now, it wasn't talking about the, dahl the dahlias and the, and, the, and the petunias in the garden. It's talking about people. Now, this is something in Bible study. When you look at con be careful and look at context, because how a word is used can be determined by context. And there are a number of words that are that way. This is just one of them. A word, the word world is used a variety of ways, and there's three in one verse. Now, some would disagree with me, but uh, if, it's just the, if he was just in the planet and the planet was made by him, you still have two different uses in one verse, but I think it's all three. And at the bottom of page 8, that the, verse 10 says, The world knew him not. Now, that is a word that's important. The world did not know him by experience. That's our word for know by experience. Now we're on top of page 9, so if you didn't have your other notes, we're on page 9, so now you can see what we're saying. And for those who may be listening in on the Internet, uh, and you can go to our, our website and look under uh, view our documents under my name, Don Hewitt, and find Problems in Understanding the Gospel of John. The notes are there up to date, and you're welcome to uh, download them and, and to use them for teaching or study. Now, on the top of page 9, we put this. The two primary words in the New Testament are tr translated no are distinct from one another, and it's in one important way. The first word, no, and I gave you the, I gave you the number there for Strong's, G1492. If you use ESWORD, you can look this word up. You can see every place it's used without knowing any Greek at all, and you can see if what I'm saying is correct. 
but it refers to something that you know intellectually, you're acquainted with facts. And I put an illustration in here that's up to date. Before the first child is born, a soon-to-be parent might say, I know all about children. <laughs> but until one has been a parent, that's only intellectual knowledge. You're in for a rude awakening if you think that they're a certain way. You know, they're not little adults that can be programmed. You find out that they also have this thing called a sin nature, Pastor. Did you know that children have a sin? Did you know your grandchildren have a sin nature? So do mine, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and uh, I, like what, I like what one of my professors in seminary said. Children are born with parent psychology. My granddaughter knows how to play her daddy and her grandpa. She knows how, that little girl back there, she knows how to wheedle what she wants. She's got parents like, she's clever. And actually, I had a, a, one of my daughters, I won't mention Andrea by name, so I don't want to embarrass her, but she was the same way. She was the same way. She knew how to play dad. Well, so did Wendy, too, come to think of it. Well, that's another story. But so, uh, so you can see that, and, and you, can, uh, you can find that in 1 Corinthians 2.11, there's a verse, and we won't go there. It just says, what man knows the things that are in a man, except the spirit of a man. You don't know intellectually what's in a man unless you're one yourself, which is kind of obvious. But now the other word for know, and we're going to have to look at this more when we come back next time, but is the word to be know by experience. You know, after that parent has a two-year-old temper tantrum, then you know by experience what children are like. Then you really know what they're like. And so you can see that. And uh, well, very hurriedly, let's go to at least, at least, we'll read these two verses. We'll run just a little bit long. In John 15, verse 18, you'll see that this word for know means that you, have, you not only are aware of the fact, that's the first word for know, but you're acquainted, you're acquainted with the fact, but now you've experienced it and you understand it a whole lot better. In John 15, verse 18, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, If the world hates you, you know, and that's the word you know by experience, that it hated me before it hated you. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? The disciples saw all the things they said. They were there in John chapter 8 when the, when the Jews took up stones. When Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. They were there and they saw the stones ready to fly. I think they got the general notion in the 8th chapter. All the things that were exchanged between Jesus and, and the Jews, he got a lot of hatred from those people. And so I think they got the general idea. They knew by experience. And the other one is John 17. And this one I particularly enjoy because this one comes down to you and I in a very positive way. While we might know by experience that the world hated Christ because it, you know, we can see it in Scripture and we'll experience some of it too. John chapter 17, verse 3, says something that really is wonderful. And this life eternal is that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And this is, and now it's translated, this is life eternal, but there's, there, grammatically you could translate it a little differently. And I like to translate it, this life eternal is in order that they might know thee. Because the word that is a word that means purpose. It's a word that means in order that. And this life eternal is in order that they might know thee. So the potential of, ha of eternal life brings is that you and I can know God by experience, not just intellectually. Unsaved people know God intellectually. They know he exists. And they might even be able to tell you a few things about it. But when it comes down to this situation where you can know... Did you have a question, Troy? Uh, oh, oh. Uh, that you can know God by experience... 
if you remember 1 John 5, it talks about Christ in you is Christ is eternal life. And if, if you have Christ in you, then you have eternal life in you. Now, if you and I live the spiritual life and the Holy Spirit brings the fruit out, that's the life of Christ. That is him living out through us. That is how you can experience the life of God in yourself. Not, by, not because we deserve it. You talk about grace. This is one of the most astounding parts of the Christian life that I can, can, I can imagine, is that we can know God by experience. He can live out through us. We can experience his love. And that's just an incredible thing when it, when it happens. And some of us can attest to it. You know, it's, it's not me that did it. It's, every one of us has experienced it. You can say, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. I'm not like this. Not at all. So God can do amazing things. And that's what Christ came to do, among other things is that you can have this, this eternal life in you. You can experience it. And that's what Christ ultimately came to do. The world didn't know him, but you and I have the potential to know him very intimately if we allow the Holy Spirit to shew his fruit in us, if we can get ourselves out of the way so that he can live all through us. Can you believe it? You can experience God in your own life. I still shake my head about that. That's one of the things that I just have a hard time understanding, along with the fact that he chose me to salvation in the first place. I don't understand why he would choose me. But then right after that, why would God allow us to have experience like that when no one in the Old Testament ever had that? Moses didn't get that. David didn't have that. No one had that. But you and I can have it. We can experience God in our life. You talk about a privilege. It's the best. We're going to come back to... uh, on page 9 next time to the state of Israel, if you mark it off there, and we'll deal with that. We trust today that you can understand John's ministry was pretty significant, that he was pointing his disciples to follow Jesus, to go off and leave him. That's just something you never see. But all would believe, he wanted everyone to believe, starting with his own disciples. Of all things, he would have sent them all away if he could have. I believe he would have. Well, Page eight, or page rather, page nine, and point E. The state. This was the state of Israel next month, and uh, let's close in a word of prayer, shall we?